Hey, glad you all glad you all are here. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, why don't you go ahead and grab them at this point in time? If you don't have your own Bible, there should be some scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And turn with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi. Old Testament book of Malachi. Now, uh, on my Bible, it's page seven hundred and seventy-eight. 778 Malachi uh, chapter 1. This morning we are beginning a new sermon series on the book of Malachi, simply entitled Half-Hearted. Half-Hearted, as God seeks to awaken an ambivalent people, both then and today. The book of Malachi. I trust that you're there or close to it. Uh, This morning we're going to do an introduction, uh, an overview uh, to help us wrap our arms and our heads around the book of Malachi, and then we'll dive in uh, next week to chapter 1. Malachi is where we're going to be. Let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that your spirit would stir our hearts uh, to worship you more fully, to, uh, to sacrifice for you more completely, um, to live for you uh, more joyfully. Father, we uh, confess that as we uh, enter into this time in this book of Malachi, uh, that very often, I know, speaking of myself, I think we find ourselves very much in the same position as uh, these people, often um, just jaded towards you, uh, questioning you, doubting you, um, angry at you, uh, doubting your love for us, uh, and half-hearted in our obedience to you. And so, Father, just as you awoke uh, your people many years ago, through the prophet Malachi, we pray that you would awaken us today, that you would awaken an ambivalent people uh, towards you so that we might be passionate for you and full of zealous obedience for your namesake and for the gospel. And so help us, we pray, as we um, begin to sink our teeth into this text, uh, that you would then sink your teeth into us, that we might uh, be uh, fully changed into your image for your glory and for our joy. We thank you for this wonderful book. And I pray that you would help me to uh, teach it faithfully uh, according to your will through the power of your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus, our God, our Savior, our King, and our Lord that we ask it. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, I ran across a poem this, uh, this week that I'd like to begin with this morning. And the poem is simply entitled, Prayer of a Half-Hearted Christian. Prayer of a Half-Hearted Christian. It goes something like this. I love thy church, O God, her walls before me stand. But but please excuse my absent, Lord, this bed is simply grand. A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, but Lord, don't ask for cash from me, the glory comes too high. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the, the Lamb? Yes, though I seldom pray or pay, I still insist I am. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, others, Lord, should do their part, but please don't count on me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Oh, loud my hymns of praise I bring because it doesn't cost me much to sing. Friend, I don't know if uh, you can identify with that prayer at all. I know that I certainly can, and I think the people to whom Malachi wrote uh, so many years ago, they certainly would identify with this prayer. It could be titled, Prayer of a Half-Hearted 5th Century Jewish Exile Returnee, although that would be too long, right? So it's simply entitled, Prayer of a Half-Hearted Christian. 
Well, today we're going to begin our sermon series in the book of Malachi with a simple overview. So we're going to find out about the background of the book of Malachi. Whom is he writing to? Who is Malachi in himself? What, what style does he use? To, how does he write his book? And what is the structure of, of the book? And then what, um, what does that mean for us today? So let's begin with the background. What, uh, what was going on in the day uh, of Malachi's writing? What's the historical background? Well, Malachi, let's kind of start simple, right? Malachi is a part of a larger group of writings known as the prophets. And so if you'll take a look uh, on the slide behind me, you'll see how the prophets are, broke, are broken down. Uh, Malachi is a part of a large group of books that you'll find at the end of your Old Testament called the prophets, the prophets. And the prophets are arranged, generally speaking, in your Bible chronologically. So the the ones at, towards the beginning of your Bible come sooner. The ones at the end of your Bible, uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, come later. And you may have noticed that Malachi is the very last book in the Old Testament, right? So if you're looking at your Bible, you've got Malachi, you, you flip, and then what comes next? You get Matthew, right? So Malachi comes at the very end, historically speaking, chronologically speaking, uh, of the Old Testament and of the prophets. So the prophets are categorized, as you can see behind me, generally speaking into three groups, depending upon uh, whether the, uh, the people they spoke to were before the exile, during the exile, or after the exile. So you notice that most of the prophets, right, Obadiah, Joel, Amos, there's, there's a long list, most of the prophets speak to the people of God before they went into exile. Then you have three prophets, Jeremiah, Daniel, in Ezekiel, that prophesy in ministry to God's people during the midst of the exile, while they were in the midst of being taken away from the promised land, taken away to a foreign land of Babylon. And then that leaves you with three prophets that write and minister to God's people after the exile. You've got Haggai, Zechariah, and then our letter, our book, Malachi, right? Malachi. You will also notice that there are some dates attached to this. And so uh, the year 605 BC is a pretty important date. That's when the Jewish people, the first wave of Jewish exiles, were taken away from their homeland into Babylon. And then you have the other date, 536. That's when the returnees began home. I want you to take a look at this next slide. Uh, speaking of the Jewish exile and return home, Malachi writes during this period, after the Jews have returned back to their homeland. And the Jewish exile, a little bit of history, happened in three phases. First of all, there was a group of about 50,000 Jews who were exiled uh, into Babylon and returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Say that three times fast, right? Zerubbabel, his leadership in the year 536 B.C. And Zerubbabel's focus was to rebuild the temple. Remember, the temple had been utterly destroyed by Babylon, and so he wanted to rebuild God's temple. Well, a second group of returnees, about 5,000 of them, returned in the year 458 B.C. This was under Ezra. You see both of these men and their ministries in the book of Ezra. Now, Ezra himself focused not on rebuilding the temple, but rebuilding the people, reforming the people of God. Uh, helping them to pursue obedience to God. A third return happened, and that return happened under Nehemiah. Nehemiah's focus was to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and uh, that was roughly in 444 BC. So, when did Malachi write? 
The long and short of it is we're not entirely sure. You may notice uh, on the map that there are two arrows, and both of them say Malachi. Some scholars think that Malachi was a little bit earlier in the exile, maybe under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Uh, I personally think that Malachi was written uh, very uh, near the end of the uh, return, uh, and I think that Malachi was... Uh, during the time of Nehemiah. I think he and Nehemiah worked together. Uh, the reason for that is if you read through Nehemiah and the problems that Nehemiah was dealing with with the people of God, it sounds very similar to what we see in the book of Malachi. Regardless, we know that Malachi writes during this, uh, uh, this uh, after the exile, during this time when the people of God had returned from captivity back into their homeland. I think he probably wrote around 432 B.C. So that's, generally speaking, biblically speaking, where we find ourselves at the very end of the Old Testament, uh, at the very end before we get to the New Testament. So what do we know about the author and the audience? What do we know about this man whose name is Malachi? And what do we know about the people that he wrote to? Well, let's first of all talk about the author, the man named Malachi. At the outset of the book, there in chapter 1, verse 1, we are told a little bit about both the author and the audience. So today we're going to cover one verse, right? That's my goal, cover one verse, and then we'll be done. Well, not technically done, but one verse, right? And then we'll get into the rest of it next week. Let's take a look at verse 1 together. It reads this way, a prophecy, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, it's a short verse, and you may think that there's not much there, but there's actually quite a bit there. So let's begin at the very beginning. We find out at the very outset of this book what type of book, what type of letter, what type of message it's going to be. Now, the NIV translates it a prophecy, um, and that's a decent translation, but, but more literally, it's a burden. In Hebrew, this is a a message that's going to be given by Malachi the prophet, and it is entitled a burden. Now that's, that's interesting, isn't it? He, he likens this message to something that is weighing heavily on his heart. It is a burden to him. He must speak it. Um, just this, uh, this past week, uh, I was playing with my kids, as I often do, and, uh, the game of the week happened to be a horsey. And you can probably guess who was the horsey. It was me, right? And so dad's the horsey and the kids are the cowboys. And so uh, the little one, Sawyer, uh, she likes to play this game. So I get on my knees and she gets on and she generally puts her, her legs kind of around my neck. So she's kind of riding right here, right? Um, and her I can handle pretty easily. I can walk around, you know, play horsey. Uh, but then uh, Piper wants to get on, right? And she can kind of slide on behind. And when I have Piper and Sawyer, it's a little heavy. But I can bear it, right? I can, I can do it. I'm kind of moving slowly, right, as they slap me and act like cowboy, cowgirls, excuse me, um, you know, playing. But then Asher wants to get on, right? Asher wants to get on, and he's a little bit heavier. And so when Asher gets on, I don't know if I can do it. it it's, it's heavy, right? It's, it's a burden, it's a burden to, to me. And so under the weight of, of, of my kids, I, what do I do? I groan, oh, oh, okay, giddy up. You know, I, th- it's, it's heavy on me. I have to say something. I have to groan out loud because of the weight of my kids. Friends, the type of message that we're going to be exploring over the next several weeks, Malachi says it's a burden to him. It's heavy on his heart. His heart is broken because of the message that God has for him 
to give to his people. It sets an ominous, anxious tone for the rest of the letter. Well, let's move on. We find out that this message, it's not only a burden for Malachi, it's not only weighing heavy on his heart, it's not just his word, though, but notice, a prophecy or a burden, and then the text says, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord to Israel. And so we find out that what we're going to be exploring in this book of Malachi is not just mere man's words. Yes, it's Malachi's burden, but the source is from God. This is the very word of God that he gave to Malachi for the people then and for the people today. So what do we know about this man whose name is Malachi? No, not the guy who's fast and runs really good. Not that Malachi. The other Malachi. This Malachi. What do we, we know a lot about that one. What do we know about this one, right? What do we know about this Malachi? Well, we know uh, that in Hebrew, his uh, name means my messenger. And so when Malachi shows up on the scene to speak to God's people, he says, my name is Malachi. They know that he's saying, my name is my messenger. That is, God sees him as his messenger to the people. Other than that, we really don't know anything about him. We don't know anything else about him. We don't know his lineage. We don't know his heritage. We don't know his occupation. We don't know his vocation. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know anything about him. All we know is his name and that he is the messenger of God. Thankfully, we know quite a bit more about his audience. So let's begin to move to the audience. Who is this prophecy or burden? It's the word of the Lord through Malachi. Who is it written to? Let's take a look again at verse 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to, so it's the audience, to Israel, to Israel. Okay, easy enough. So we begin with, this is a message to God's covenant people, God's special people, specifically the people of the southern nation of Judah who had been exiled out of the promised land by Babylon only for a portion of them to return back to the promised land, not under Babylonian rule, but under Persian rule some 70 years later. So let's try our best now to put ourselves in their shoes. Who is Malachi writing to? What are they dealing with? What must it have been like? What was it like to be in their shoes? You know, the temple has been rebuilt. Remember, this is sacred space for the Jewish people. It was destroyed, and now it is rebuilt. That's a good thing. Sacrifices were underway. The priesthood had been reestablished. Homes and buildings in the city of Jerusalem were being rebuilt. And so you would think at the outset, hey, you're not, you're not You're not in captivity anymore. You're not in Babylon. You're home, right? You're back in your home. Certainly, you would think that that would be a good thing, and it was a good thing. You would think that that things would be looking up for the people of God after they returned home from being in exile. But the truth of the matter is, is that life for the people of God during the day of Malachi, this post-exilic period, was really hard. It was difficult. Things were rough. So let's take a look at what we know about the audience, the people, and then see if we can relate to it simply by what we know through the book of Malachi. First of all, they were not free people. They were not free people, but they were under Persian rule. Now, this is a big deal. God had promised the land to them and that they would have a a king from the line of David to sit on David's throne forever. But this was not the case anymore because of their disobedience. Yes, they were in their homeland But they had no authority over their homeland. They were living under the rule of godless, hostile, pagan 
leadership. So yes, they were home, but they had no independence in their nation. Not only that, but economically, things were not looking up. It was a time of depression, you might say. Harvests were very poor. There was locusts eating up the harvest. And so uh, kids were sitting at home saying, Daddy, what are we going to eat today? And Dad had to look at them in the eye and said, The Lord will provide. It was hard. Times were tough. Not only that, but the religious atmosphere, the spiritual atmosphere of the people was very bad. The leaders of the nation, specifically the priests, the leaders and the laity were all marked by disobedience, indifference, and even resentfulness towards God. Those who claimed to follow God blatantly disobeyed his clear commands from Scripture. They half-heartedly went through the motions of, of worship. They even posted negative messages about God and his church on Facebook while still checking the Christian label uh, on Facebook. Okay, that's a joke, right? They, they weren't doing that. But, but you get the point. They were making negative comments about God. They doubted God. God, where are you? Homes and marriages were in shambles. Marriages were happening, happening to unbelievers, which was often common, often preceded by no-fault divorces, resulting in broken families. So the, the, the economics were bad. The spiritual life of the people was marked by disobedience. The homes were falling apart. Not only that, but the culture around them, the cultures around them had made deep inroads, both into the values and the practices of God's people. You could say that Israel looked more like the world than God's otherworldly people. Their worship was quite simply a sham. They were going through the motions and they were giving God as little as they possibly could. And they even complained about doing that. And maybe most significantly, the people's hope in God's promises, in God's faithfulness, in God's fairness, in his justice, and in his coming kingdom had dwindled. See, they doubted. God, are you fair? God, are you loving? God, are you just? God, are you in control? You must delight in evil, God, because all I see is evil nations, and they're prospering, and we're not. It must be vain to serve you. We should just stop. This is what the people were going through. Maybe that's what you are going through. It may sound like the church in America today. It may sound like your or my life today. Maybe we too are wearied by living in a fallen world, particularly in a land where leadership at most every level is less and less Christian, seemingly more and more hostile by the hour. Maybe financially things are tough for you, like they were for these first uh, fifth century Jews. And it's affecting your trust in God. God, will you come through for me? God, will you meet my needs? Maybe like them, you're struggling to, to, to stroke the flames of your faith as indifference and cynicism and even outright blatant disobedience has become a staple for your spiritual diet, just like it was for theirs. Maybe your marriage or your home is starting to fall apart like it was for many of the Jews in that day. Maybe the culture of our day has made deep inroads into your way of thinking, into your way of living. And you sound more like the culture than the Christian consensus of the last 2,000 years. Maybe your worship like theirs is becoming a sham as you offer less and less of your time and your talent and your treasure, complaining all the while. Or maybe like them, your trust in God's justice, his fairness, his equity is waning. So, how does God address a people back then 
and today who are struggling with these kind of struggles? Well, he does it through Malachi in a particular and interesting way. So let's begin to talk about now the style of Malachi and the structure of Malachi. Malachi uses a very um, unique, uh, especially to the prophets, uh, style. And the style is known as a disputational style. That's a big word. A disputational style. Let me show you what I mean. Each disputation has three basic elements. It begins with the prophet bringing a charge against the people of God or a claim to the people of God. So the prophet says, this is what you're doing wrong, or this is what God says. The second element is the people respond. Malachi is going to put words in the people's mouths, right? And the people respond cynically. They question God. They question the charge that he's made against them. God, are we really doing that wrong? Or they question the claim. God, did you really say that? Did you really mean that? So there's a questioning by the people. Third, the section ends by God through Malachi saying, I'm right, and here's the reason why. He gives them, uh, if you will, uh, an explanation, right? He backs up his charge. So here's an example, just so you kind of get a feel for it. And as we go through, it'll be very apparent. Starting in chapter 1, verse 2, it's the very first disputation. We see this happening. First, you have the charge or the claim. And in this case, it's a, it's a claim. God, God claims this in verse 2. Take a look uh, in your Bibles or behind, behind me on the screen. So here's the claim by God. I have loved you, says the Lord. So it begins with a claim. God wants the people to know, I love you, and I have loved you, and I do love you. But then what do they do? How do they respond to that? They question that. They're cynical. What do they say? We'll read the text. But you ask, Malachi says, you ask, how have you loved us? Right? So God says, I love you. And the people say, show me. Right? How have you loved me? They're cynical. They doubt God. Well, God tells them that. He says this, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Next week, we'll explain what that means. But God says this, I'm going to answer your question. I'm going to back up my charge or my claim. It's a very uh, interesting kind of a dialogue that we're going to see throughout this book between God and Malachi and the, the cynical people of God. So that's the style. But what's the structure? Let's close our sermon by discovering how God speaks to a people who, uh, who, who are going through what they're going through. There are six disputations, and that basically makes up the format of the whole book. It's very easy. Question, I mean, a charge, the people question, God backs it up. And there are six cycles of that. It's, it's pretty easy to see. The first disputation is in uh, 1, 2 through 5. The people question God's love. We just read it in the text, right? In disputation 1, the people say, God, we look at what's happening in our world and in our life, and it doesn't feel like you love us. And so they question God's love. They look at their circumstances. God, if you love us, how come this happened? Have you ever been there before? I think we all have, right? And so to that question and to those kind of people, Malachi says, believe God. Believe God. Specifically, believe that God loves you. In disputation number two, the people are charged with failing to honor him. In this section, God tells the priests specifically and the people that follow them that they fail to honor him. They don't honor him like a great king. And they say, how have you done that? He says, let me tell you how you've done that. You're bringing sick and lame animals for sacrifice. The very thing God told them not to do. They have a 
a healthy animal and they have a lame animal. Which one are they going to bring to God? Not the healthy one. I'm going to give God that which is least expensive. And he says, you are not honoring me in this way. You're cutting corners, right? You're not giving me the, res- the respect that I deserve. Have you ever done that before? I'm sure I have too. So to them and to us, Malachi says, honor God, honor God by giving him your best. In the third disputation in chapter 2, it runs in verses 10 through 16, the people were acting unfaithfully. The main charge of the prophet is that you as a people are unfaithful. And so they say, how are we unfaithful, right? And he says, let me tell you how you're unfaithful. He then goes on to describe how men of the people of God were divorcing their wives to marry pagan ungodly women who worshipped idols, something the law forbid, breaking their marriage covenant. And God says, you're being unfaithful to the wife of your youth, the wife of your covenant, and you're being unfaithful to me in the process. And so God says to them and to us, be faithful, be faithful to me by being faithful to your spouse and your family. In the fourth disputation, it runs chapter 2, verses 17, all the way into chapter 3, verse 5. The people doubted God's justice. That is, they said, God, are you fair? It doesn't seem like you're being fair. The people were jaded. They were jaded by the, discrep- the, by the discrepancy between God's promises to them and their current reality. So God had promised them certain things, but it hadn't happened yet. And so they were becoming jaded. Evil men were prospering. The people of God were languishing, right? They were saying, God, it's not fair. God, it's not fair. One of my daughters uh, is, is kind of going through a, a phase where she uh, struggles with this. It's not fair. Brother gets to do this. Sister gets to do that. It, it's just, it's, it's not fair. And uh, it was Easter time, and so we were setting out their Easter eggs, and we decided to do it differently this year. What we did is we had uh, three different colors according to child, right? So Asher gets blue, Piper gets purple, Sawyer gets green, or whatever it was, right? And, uh, and so uh, Shelly and uh, her dad were setting out the Easter eggs, and they had gotten Asher's, and I think they had gotten Sawyer's Easter eggs set out, but they hadn't gotten Piper's. And uh, my father-in-law made kind of a, a joking comment, because he, he kind of noticed, you know, this it's not fair uh, kind of a thing. And uh, he said, do you think that she would think it's, it's, it's not fair if we just left her eggs in the bag, you know? And, of course, we didn't do that. But, um, you know, oftentimes we all, we all are like this. Right? We look at other people and we say, it's not, it's not fair. That's what was happening to the people of God in that day. They were saying, God, are you just? God, can we, can we trust you? Maybe you too have grown cynical with God's fairness. So to them and to you, Malachi says, trust God. Trust God. He is fair. He is just, is a better word to describe it. The fifth disputation begins in chapter 3, verse 6, and it runs through verse 12. God says to his people, you are a stiff-necked people who refuse to repent. Throughout your history, you have refused to repent, but do so now. Turn to me. Repent from your sin. Stop digging into your sin, but repent. And they say, what should we repent of? As if they didn't know. What should we repent of, right? And they say, and God says through Malachi, this is what you should repent of. Here's what you're doing. You're not bringing in the entire tithe and the entire offering into the temple. You're cutting it short. And by doing that, you're robbing me. You're robbing me. That's why what you should repent from. So, to those of us who may be inclined to give God less than what he deserves, 
Malachi says to them and to us, obey God, obey God. Don't refuse to repent. And then finally, the book ends in chapter 3, verses 12, and it runs into chapter 4, the end of the book. The people were blaspheming his character. They were blaspheming his character. They were speaking words that were harsh or difficult against God. In this final disputation, Malachi tells them that what they have said against God in word is wrong. Saying, what, what were the people saying? They were saying, you know what? It's futile to serve God. We don't get anything from it. Man, look at these people. They don't serve God, and they're doing well. But we try to serve God, and what do we get? Nothing. We get a bag of rocks, right? Nothing. So we shouldn't even do it. They were blaspheming his character, wondering, is it worth it as a follower of God to pursue him? Is it, is it worth it? I don't know if you've ever asked that question before. I've asked that question. God, is it worth it? I'm making sacrifices here. I'm doing it your way. It doesn't quite seem like it's working out as well as this person who doesn't give a rip about what is happening with you. And in doing so, they blaspheme in God's character. So to close the book, Malachi urges us, fear God, fear God. So today we've seen the background of Malachi, its author and its audience. We've seen its style and its structure. Malachi writes to a half-hearted people. He writes to a half-hearted people both then and he writes to me and you. He writes to me and you who may find ourselves in the shoes of these people in one way, shape, or another. Half-hearted. Half-heartedly going through the motions, serving God. The poem, the prayer of a half-hearted Christian could be said of them and it could be said of us as well. Maybe today. So my prayer for this sermon series is that God would awaken an ambivalent people so that we would no longer be half-hearted but we would be full-hearted in our love and in our obedience to him. So I look forward to doing Malachi with you. We'll start it afresh next week. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear from your word through the prophet Malachi, who spoke to a people long ago, and through your spirit speaks to us today. Father, we confess that in one way, shape, or form, we find ourselves in the shoes of these uh, people of God so many years ago, struggling with the same uh, questions, with the same doubts, with the same fears, with the same circumstances, with the same cynicism, with the same disobedience, with the same half-heartedness. Father, would you stir our hearts uh, that we might no longer be um, uh, lukewarm and tepid uh, Christians, but that we might follow you uh, full-heartedly, passionately, with obedience all the days of our life. We thank you that we can do this not uh, on our own strength, but you have loved us uh, with an everlasting love by sending your son Jesus so that we can have our sins forgiven so that we can have eternity secured so that we can know you and be reconciled to you when we place our faith in you and in you alone not because of any good work not because of any merit not because of any uh, any anything we deserve but when we come to your son jesus in faith and trust and belief alone you forgive us and you change us so that we might be not half-hearted people but that we would be people whose heart is fully yours so we pray towards that end in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. See you next week.